So Snickers had one of the most memorable ad campaigns with a slogan. Do you remember what it was? You're not you when you're hungry. You remember that? It obviously made a big impact on y'all. because not many people, you're not you when you're hungry. Hey, my name's Carter McKenna, I'm lead pastor here, and uh, great to join you uh, in your homes or on your back porch on this beautiful morning, uh, and great to see many of you here. The, the thinking behind this campaign was the idea that when you're hungry, uh, you know, some negative things might happen. If you're hungry, you might do something stupid, right, that you might, uh, you know, line up the wrong way or something like that, or they actually own their candy bars for a long time. I still think they do a little bit of this. They would put, or you would exhibit some attitudes that you wouldn't normally be. You'd be a goofball or confused or cranky or feisty, or you'd be a drama mama. Uh, They had others that said you'd be snarky or you'd be a hot mess or you'd be hangry. Did any of you ever get hangry? Yes, yes, I know, I know people that get hangry. Or if you were hungry, you just might be a little slow. And this is one of my favorite ones of their ads that they had. Uh, they included a 20% off bouquet of flowers because it said, if hunger calls to delayed response to, is she prettier than me, use this coupon the next time and eat a Snickers, <laughs> right? You should answer that very quickly. Of course not. Uh, so the thinking was that, you know, you'll do something kind of stupid. And I'm not sure that candy is the best thing to eat if you're hungry to curb your appetite, but I think they were onto something. I think, I think that they were onto something, but not necessarily about hunger. In fact, what they were trying to communicate about hunger is kind of the same message that the Apostle Paul teaches about marriage and intimacy. And what might go wrong uh, in dealing with this desire and this passion that we have. So, speaking of Snickers, you might snicker a little bit this morning. You might laugh a little bit because we're going to talk about what we don't talk about much in church. We're going to talk about sex and particularly sex in marriage. It's interesting that we don't talk about it because this will blow your mind. Every single New Testament author talks about sexual issues of some kind. Every single New Testament author author talks about And the church, for the most part, has been silent on this issue, or when we've talked about it, it's not very helpful. In fact, this has essentially been our teaching on sex for 2,000 years. Before marriage, bad. After marriage, good luck. Right? You kids have at it. I hope it works out. That's kind of what we do. We, we just kind of just say before marriage, bad. After marriage, good luck. Hope it works out. I mean, figure it out on your own. And that's what we leave most couples to do is to figure it out on their own. So last uh, two weeks ago at the very beginning of this series, uh, week one, I talked about number one here about before marriage and how the Bible actually teaches what God's best for us. So if you're a teenager, you're single, go back and watch that from February 14th uh, so you can kind of learn what the Bible says about that. But today, I want to address this second one, after marriage, how we should deal with this issue. And we should not be telling young couples or couples that are getting married, good luck. We should be teaching them God's wisdom because the Apostle Paul teaches so clearly on this issue. 
Now, the interesting thing, though, is you have probably never heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 7. You're going to hear one today. And that's a shame because we live in a world, we live in a world that continues to deal with marriages that are torn apart by sexual dysfunction, uh, sexual addiction, and infidelity. And culture has a lot to say about sex. So we shouldn't be afraid to say what the creator of sex has to say about sex. The God who made us in his image and who wants what's best for us. I just want you to know this. If you start feeling that like your face getting red or you getting embarrassed today, I want to just, I want to assure you of something or even you're, you're, if you're sitting there, God is not embarrassed by sex. Newsflash, he invented it. He invented it. He created us. He created us. Male and female is in, in his image. He created marriage, and he wants what's best for this. So I promise you, at no point during today's message or when we read some of these scriptures that you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the Bible says that. I promise you, God is not up in heaven going, oh, dear, I can't believe it says that. I promise you. He's saying, I inspired these words. Would you listen to them? Would you take them seriously? Would you, would, you, would you drink them in to your heart, to your life? So the big picture for Paul is this, and what I hope you'll take away from today is that holy marriages have healthy intimacy. Holy marriages. And what we're going to see Paul uh, kind of spell out is what a holy marriage, what a godly marriage looks like that has healthy intimacy. And I want you to have a healthy relationship. And you probably know that nothing will wreck your marriage worse than this issue going sideways. I mean, we see it all the time. We see it with pornography, wrecking marriages, we see it with affairs, wrecking marriages. We see sexless marriages and this issue becoming a huge point of tension. And can't listen, can we just name, name it? And we see it in the church as celebrity pastor after celebrity pastor loses their ministry and loses their marriage because of an out-of-bounds relationship. The church isn't immune to it. And in my 21 years of ministry, I've seen it up close and personal. I've had couples come before me for counseling. I've had couples where one partner had just had their third affair. Whoa. And I've had other couples who came to me for counseling, and they hadn't had sex in two years. Whoa. They both had the same issue go wrong in different directions. And God wants what's best for us in this marriage. Now, for teens and singles and for young married couples, if you're young and married, like you've been married like a year or two, okay, here's something that Paul is going to address because I'm going to start talking about this and you're going to say, I, listen, this doesn't make much sense because what Paul is going to address is a myth about sex, okay? There is a myth about sex that if you're a young person, you're thinking like, I can't even imagine that this is a problem. I don't even get what, you're, what Paul's talking about, what God's trying to say to us here. But if, so if you're a young couple or you're single and like you're just like, you know, hormones are raging, you're like, here's the myth about sex. 
what is easy will always be easy. That's a myth about sex. And some of you that are more my age or a little older, you're like, yep, that's right. You, we believe when we're young that what is easy will always be easy. And you're sitting there thinking if you're like 25 and you've been married a year or two, you're like, I can't imagine this is ever going to be difficult. And I just have something to tell you. One day jogging is going to be difficult. <laughs> One day getting out of bed is going to be difficult. Right? And the things that you think are easy one day are going to get hard. Right now, you have more hormones than you've ever had. You have more freedom than you've ever had. You have less stress than you'll ever have. And your body is in the best shape of its life. And one day, you're going to look back and you're going, oh, it wasn't easy. I was just full of hormones and not old and not sleep deprived. And so... I want you to understand that you better lean on something other than hormones to get this right because one day the hormones won't be on your side. So you better have a different plan. And what Paul talks about in this is literally a strategy. A strategy. So we're going to be camping out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It, like I said, you've probably never heard a message on this because really what Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 7 is his strategy for intimacy in marriage. So 1 Corinthians 7, if you've got your Bibles at home or you've or you got your, Bible, your app open, your phone or your tablet, if you're in here in person and you don't have a physical Bible, let us give you one. We've got some hard copies on the bookshelves when we leave. We would love to give that to you. It'd be a great thing to keep because uh, as Ben mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be doing these miracles, reading through all the miracles of Jesus, all 35 for the next five weeks starting tomorrow. So you want to get that so you can stay up to, up to date on that. So let's look at what it says. This is a fascinating line in the opening of chapter 7. Paul has spent six chapters. He has spent six chapters kind of dealing with some issues. He dealt with some sexual issues about sex outside of marriage. Um, he dealt with all kinds of things. But then at the very start of chapter 7, this is what he writes, in the middle of this letter to the Corinthians church, he says, now for the matters you wrote about. That's fascinating. So we've got two letters from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Paul went and started a church, you can read about it in the book of Acts, in this Greek community called Corinth. And we have, as part of our New Testament, these two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that Paul wrote. But what we know is that there are missing letters. We don't have the letters that they wrote back to Paul. But Paul clearly states that there is a letter that we have not read that they wrote to him. And I, listen, this is unprecedented today. I have a brand new archaeological find, never read before, the text of this letter, okay? They wrote a letter and it went something like this. Dear Paul, what about sex? Because what he's about to talk about, what they wrote about, that's what it's about. At some point, they wrote this letter to Paul that said, hey, dear Paul, what about this issue? And that would have made perfect sense for them to ask the question. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, you, you, you understand what I talked about, the community of Corinth. It was Vegas before Vegas was Vegas. 
It, it was uh, wildly sexual. They were most known and most famous for a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. There were temple prostitutes that were still very prevalent in the city. It was a sexually charged culture. And now Paul has reached these people, some of them with the gospel of Jesus, and they have become followers of Jesus. And so you can imagine they're writing back and like, hey, how do we deal with what we were raised in? What, what are we supposed to do with this? We, we grew up in a really different kind of culture. Do we just follow what the Old Testament says about sex? What did Jesus say about it? What do you say about it? Is there some new teaching about it? So Paul, first line of his, of his letter of this section, for the matters you wrote about, and then he has a quote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you notice that's in quotes. He is probably quoting the letter. He's probably quoting the letter back to them. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And this is most likely a Corinthian slogan that some Greek philosophers were starting to float. See, it was such a crazy, over-sexualized culture in Corinth that there was these other voices, some of the Greek philosophical voices who were parroting a, a life of celibacy, even in marriage, and were saying like the way to be better than the, what society is and what culture is, is that you should just, no man should have any sex, no women should have sex, or shouldn't, you just shouldn't have sex. And so you can imagine their confusion that they've got the voice of the culture and the sexually charged culture over here and these philosophical voices with this almost Puritan kind of idea of sexuality of just like sex is bad and no one should have it. Even if you're married, no one should do it. And they're just kind of like, Paul, what are we supposed to do? Can I have sex? Can unmarried people have sex? Can, can married people have sex? When we come to faith in Christ, is this desire supposed to go away? Some people say sex isn't a big deal, but we're seeing our lives destroyed by it. We're seeing marriages destroyed by it. People are getting hurt, so it must be a big deal. Hey, Paul, what about sex? Dot, 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 asking for a friend. And Paul, interestingly, who was single, and lived a life of celibacy, says that neither perspective is right. That we're created as sexual beings, that God created this, and there is a healthy way for this desire to come to fruition as long as it has the right boundaries. It just needs the right parameters. So Paul says, the overly sexualized culture doesn't have it right that says do whatever you want with whomever you want whenever you want. And this weird philosophical Puritan-esque thinking that just says sex is bad, no one should do it, that's not right either. Paul says God created you differently than that, better, that there's a better plan. There's a, God had a strategy for this. This is what he says. But since sexual immorality is occurring, in other words, there's no way to do it right on either sides of those extremes. There, it creates immorality, it creates activities against God's plans. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. This is what a man should do. This is what a woman should do, not with just anybody, anywhere, anytime, but with their husband, with their wife. 
Paul says sex is not a bad idea. It's God's design. There's not a problem with this desire. There's just a place for it. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage is not God's best for you, Paul says. It is not God's plan. And teens and singles and college students, I just want you to know this is not old-fashioned. This is not antiquated. This is not out of date. This is God's best for you. Paul is saying that God designed this to go in a specific place. And I want to just say this with clarity and compassion. It's nothing wrong that you have those desires. There's just a right place for those to be fulfilled. Let me ask it this way. Now, we just hit like Alabama first spring this week, right? Every temperature's got like 80 degrees all of a sudden, but just a week ago it snowed. Um, And would you, if it was cold, would you start a fire in the middle of your house? Of course not, right? Why would you start a fire? What would happen? They'd burn the whole house down, right? Would you start a fire in the fireplace? What'll happen? It provides warmth, light. Is there something wrong with fire? Is there something bad with fire? It's just got to be in the right place. If you're a teenager, single, you're a college student, and you've got these passions, and what Paul is saying is, listen, if you put these in the wrong place in your life and you don't put the right boundaries around this, you think it's going to be fun, you think it's going to bring warmth, but be careful, it could burn your whole house down. But if you put this in the right parameters and you put this in the right boundaries of marriage, it can provide warmth, it can provide light to the marriage, it can, can provide a central place in the marriage. And here's, here's what I know. Sex is a beautiful thing and it's created by God and I have never known anyone who did it God's way, followed God and obeyed God in, in sexuality and regretted it, but I know a lot of people who did it their own way and thought they knew better and have the scars to prove it. And that's been true in my own life. I've, when I followed God, when I've obeyed God in this area, that I found God's greatest blessings. His design for intimacy is still best for us. So, we might ask Paul then, okay, that's what we should do. How do we, what's this look like in marriage? Well, what, is this, what does a healthy intimacy in marriage look like then, Paul? Paul says this. The hus- husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. So what Paul is saying is that there is this mutuality, there's this mutual relationship, an understanding that my body belongs to you. And this is what it means to be one flesh, Paul says, that I am yours and you are mine and that we are in this together. But there's going to take communication, it's going to take compromise. This is a covenant relationship. And this is why sex outside marriage doesn't work because you've got, this, you've got this, this fire that you're lighting outside the bounds of a covenant. And when this happens outside of marriage, it's, it's, 
It's, it's writing checks with our, with our body that our heart can't cash. Sex doesn't create a covenant. It brings warmth to the covenant. It, it seals it. It puts marriage in the fireplace where it's supposed to be. So, but some people might ask, like, because remember what I said, there's this myth. There's some people, if you're young, if you're a teenager, you're a college student, and you're just like, your hormones are raging, or you're this young couple, and you're still kind of in that newlywed stage in the first year or two. Like, there's that word in there. What word in there is this kind of like duty? Like, when will this become a duty? That just sounds like, really? This duty? Because there's a fly in the ointment that Paul knows about that if you've been married long enough, you'll figure out. What do you do when one of you doesn't want to do it? Right? How do you get through this relationship when one of you doesn't want to do it or one of you doesn't want to do it as much as the other one wants to do it? These are conversations, these are tensions that every marriage, every couple has struggled with. What do you do when one of the parties, one of the couple doesn't want to do it and then it all of a sudden it starts really feeling like a duty and it creates a lot of stress and a lot of tension in a relationship? And Paul answers that question. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Do not deprive each other except for, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, if you're a young couple, remember I said you're believing these myths, you're thinking, why would you deprive each other, right? And the answer is, because the baby cried all night, because my back hurts, because I woke up at 5 a.m., right? That's why, because there are things that are going to happen in life, because as stress went up, sex drive went down, because things are tough at work, because we're struggling, because we just fought, because the bills are stacking up. There's a lot of reasons. Because he's addicted to pornography and emotionally distant. Or because she never initiates it, and I'm tired of initiating it. Because we just can't talk about it because it's too personal. That's why. Paul says you should only deprive each other by mutual consent. You've got to talk about it if you're not going to do it, Paul says. Is that what happens in your marriage? I mean, if any of you guys are looking at pornography, are you doing that by mutual consent when you deprive your wife of the passion and the desire that you vowed to give her? Hey, honey, just want you to know I'm going in the back room and going to look at some porn. That cool with you? When you deprive each other, when, when ladies, when you say you're not in the mood, is it to devote yourself to prayer or to wash your hair? That's the old one says. I know some of you are going to try to use that. And honey, I just need to go pray, right? <laughs> but like, do you pray for him? 
when you say you're not in the mood, do you pray for your husband then? Paul says this is serious business by mutual consent or, or to prayer. And then he says what? For a set time. Like if one of you's not in the mood, do you say like, okay, hey, honey, not tonight, but how about tomorrow or how about Tuesday? Let's set a date. I mean, Paul's so crystal clear about this. Isn't this amazing that this is in the Bible? I guess people in Corinth were struggling with it. Wonder if anybody in America is. For a set time, Paul says. And there's and people will say, like, why is this a big deal? Why is Paul so clear about this? And there, and the next verse reveals it. And it's what you and I know about this issue. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What Paul says is that this area of your life will be one of the easiest areas for the devil to tempt you. This will be one of the most easy areas for Satan to mess with you, to wreck your life, to wreck your marriage, to tear apart your family, to destroy your career, to destroy your reputation. This will be this is one of the areas you are most vulnerable to Satan's attack. And if you don't if you don't get this right in marriage, then you could get in a situation that could really hurt you. And, and it's, what's interesting is this word here for self-control is not the word that Paul typically uses for self-control or that any of the other New Testament writers use for self-control. Luke or Peter or any other of the writers, when Paul usually use, talks self-control, the word he usually uses and normally in the New Testament is, is egratea. That's what when uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, when Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And all the other places in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, he uses this word akrasia. And it's only used one other time in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's talking about their penchant for self-indulgence and excess. And what Paul is saying is that Satan will tempt you in this because in this area of your life, it's not that you don't have control. It's not that you don't have temperance. It's that we are all prone to self-indulgence in this, in this area. Simply, here's what Paul's saying. Without a strategy for sex in marriage, you might do something stupid for sex outside marriage. Without a strategy... If you don't have a plan for how you're going to come together after you've deprived one another for a while you, and you don't have a plan for how you're going to make this a reality in your marriage, you might do something for stupid for sex outside of marriage. This is something that Paul says you're going to have to work at, communicate about, talk about, pray about, or otherwise Satan will tempt you because every single one of us has this penchant for self-indulgence in this issue. And we could do something stupid. You have a God-given desire, and you better figure out how to, how to work with it. Think about it this way. So let's say one of the spouse in a marriage decides that there's going to be no more food in the house, no more cooking. Pantry's empty, no more food. You're gonna be a food-free house the family is done with eating. Now, how would you handle that? For like a day, you might could make it. Some of you are like, eh, maybe one meal, right? 
For, but you could live a day or two. But if you decide, if one spouse just kind of unilaterally decided that there's going to be no food, sooner or later, sooner or later, you are going to stop by McDonald's. Or I'm in a, I know I'm in a bad spot with food when I get the iced honey bun at the gas station. This, this marks most of my worst decisions in a year of just, does anybody else like iced honey buns? Does anybody else? Here we go right here. You get the iced honey bun right there. It's okay. You, 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 go, you can go get it. Eat it right now. It's, it's good. Um, because you got to do something to feed that appetite. But deep down, you know what you need is a wholesome, home-cooked meal that sooner or later, this stuff will kill you on the inside. But what are you supposed to do if there's no food at home? This is what happens when you cut your spouse off sexually. They got in a covenant relationship and you made a vow to one another that you were going to meet their needs. And they, <laughs> hey listen, by standing on the altar, they were saying that they didn't have the gift of celibacy. But here's the deal. Here's what's so tricky about this. You know, it's not a sin to go to McDonald's, I don't think. It's, it's not a sin to go to get fast food. But it's a sin to go outside of bounds of marriage to get this desire, this passion met. So when you cut your spouse off sexually, you put them in a spot where they have to try to figure out what to do with this God-given desire in them, or they're just supposed to kind of gut it out, or are they supposed to go outside and do something really stupid and unhealthy outside the boundaries of home? Or, consider this. Let's say your spouse um, makes an incredible gourmet home-cooked meal every single night. Man. But you decide you're going to eat a pack of Oreos before dinner every single night. Anybody else like Oreos? You got to eat a pack of Oreos before dinner every single night. And it turns out that your mom was right. What happens? Spoil your appetite. And even though you've got this incredible home-cooked gourmet meal right in front of you, you don't quite have the appetite for it that you should. You don't quite appreciate it. And this is, this is what happens when you look at porn, guys. Who said they liked Oreos? You like Oreos over here. This has nothing to do with what I think about you, right? right? But you, you just get the Oreos. Good, good catch, good catch. Spoils your appetite for the home-cooked meal you got in front of you. And I wish I could say the stats are different for church, but all the stats say one in three American men look at pornography at least once a month. And you're essentially cutting your spouse off emotionally, mentally, and sometimes physically because that desire goes down and what Paul is saying is this this is why this is so important because at some point if you start getting this stuff wrong in marriage at some point 
a cute neighbor or coworker is going to come up to you and go, hi. And you got a decision of one of two things right there. You're either going to go, oh, hi. Or you're going to say, hey. And it's funny to some of us, but not to others, because some people know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't nurtured and nourished this desire, this passion that God gave you, and this intimacy that God designed you for, at that moment, you might do something stupid that can set your life in a course on a direction that you never imagined and you never intended. And what Paul is saying and what I want for you is to have a strategy to nourish this part of your life and this marriage so that it negates the power of that moment. And you just go, oh, hi, and go about your business because it flies right over your head that there was an opportunity that Satan was trying to tempt you. I want you to get this right. And without a strategy for sex in marriage, you might do something stupid for sex outside marriage. This is going to take some work. So I want to give you some practical steps. you got to talk about it. If this hit home with you today, you, gotta, you need to talk about it today. You need to pray about it. Ask God for help. God, listen, I know that's going to sound, it's going to feel so weird. God is not embarrassed for you to pray about this. He is not embarrassed for you to pray about this. He is not embarrassed for you to pray about this. And schedule it, for goodness sakes. Like Paul said, like, hey, we're having problems with this. We're having problems getting the mood. Decide, like Wednesday night, we're getting in the mood. Put it on the calendar. Put it on the calendar and say, we're going to do, we're going to follow exactly what Paul said. We're struggling with this area. We're going to put it on the calendar. And if you're at an impasse, this is worth a counselor. If you're having trouble with sexual addiction, one of our partners is Awaken Ministry. They've got some flyers at the Connect booth. Or you can go on our website and learn about them. We would love for you to check them out. Greg and his team would love to help you. If you feel like you need a marriage mentor, we've got couples that want to walk with couples. Now here's the thing, when I teach on this issue, it's easy to see some looks of regret and sometimes some tears. And I bet even sitting on your couch at home, there's a few of those. But the good news of Jesus Christ is not that we always get everything right all the time. There's no one in this room that has. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote that in 1 Corinthians, this incredible standard for marriage, also wrote in Romans this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
And you may have made some mistakes. You may have a sexual past. You may have done some things. Hey, guys, you might be dealing with an addiction and you feel so ashamed. You might have made a huge mistake in your marriage because you took a wrong step when somebody said hi. But I want you to know something. We have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by his grace. One of my seminary professors said that word means it's just if I'd never done it. It is forgotten. It is forgiven. You are redeemed in the blood of Jesus. And you don't have to worry about your past, even your sexual past. It can be cleansed and healed and redeemed. But you get 100% control of your future and the steps you take today. So what if you just said, today, I want us to take a step in obedience with Jesus in our marriage because we have got to get this right. And God gave us his wisdom. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're not really closing with a song. You don't even have to stand up. I want to ask Jamie, if you just play the chorus to Living Hope and for just us to sing, because those words are so powerful. Um, and I just want Jamie to lead us in the chorus of that song we sang before. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this wisdom you give us in your word. And Lord, I feel the weight here of, of us just dealing with the regret over this issue. But Lord, help us to receive your mercy and grace and help us to walk in freedom. Lord, I'm praying for men to take steps out of sexual addiction today, God. To take steps out of addiction to pornography. To take steps into freedom. I'm praying for women to take steps out of sexual addiction today, Lord. I'm praying for tension in marriage over this issues that hasn't been talked about, Lord. We're praying for you to take out of the darkness and bring everything into the light, God, the glorious light, Lord. I'm praying for singles and teens, God, in this series who have realized that they've been stepping out of bounds and they're wanting to take steps of holiness and faithfulness and obedience, but it's hard. It's gonna mean a tough conversation with friends in a relationship, God, but Lord, we claim the name of Jesus over all these tensions, God, because you made us and you have a purpose for us in relationships. Help us, God, to get it right. Help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask Jamie just to sing this chorus and... Uh, just listen to these words. Whatever you got going on in relationships, whatever you got going on in your, your heart, maybe there's, some, maybe there's some bondage going on over this issue. And just listen to these words and just sing it through a couple times with Jamie. Hallelujah.